ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ but as we had that little technical difficulty down there where we cut out i think satam liam guraman fukra who are my neighbors and let's face it to have a fight with everyone on the street must have cursed me yeah 21st century curses here they work digitally <laughs> digitally <laughs> anyhow i'm thinking maybe i'll do an episode on their antics and why the current plot coming over from the villages of Punjab are crazy anyway leaving dead aside before i get lynched here's a <clears throat> short quote i have it's from rodyard kipling so wait a second can you hear the decolonization lot screech well uh, as soon as you mention a name that they don't like or let's say any foreign name yep you know what they up to yeah i can almost hear the tanks of cancel culture invading my liberty on this podcast anyway <laughs> getting on from there <clears throat> here's the quote it is not a good fancy said the lama what profit to kill men very little as i know the old soldier replied but if evil men were not now and then slain it would not be a good world for weaponless dreamers hmm it's it's pretty deep for the law to say this is the 21st century democracy etc etc i mean the sikh preachers who talk about democracy and living in democracy and how you know gore particularly white people have good countries like can we send them to ukraine and russia to explain democracy to the white people there you have to send them to ancient greeks uh, greece and uh, rome to just witness how democracy ended <laughs> okay, leaving that aside, so today's episode is pretty important. Now, let me provide a bit of context down here. You know, when people don't like something in this world, they usually demean it. They find all sorts of ways to cancel it out, vilify it. You know, almost treat it like Spotify treated Joe Rogan. yeah <laughs> and <laughs> the thing is <clears throat> when you try canceling something or you know silencing something you need to provide your own alternative now it might be a methodology it might be a way of doing things it might be a way of thinking it might be a philosophy you got to provide an alternative which is relevant to the people and which is more effective than you know what was initially being used now progress hinges on the fact that you know only the fittest ideas survive over time am i right could be said so yeah yep so if you look at history especially the historical sciences and historiography which is the study of how history is made how we understand it and how it's written down so basically studying the historians who write down history would you agree that in essence if we put a fundamental definition to what history is basically at its core at its most profound definition history is the study of human thought and how it interacts with human action that's one way to put it and uh well there are far too many definitions it's like uh it's the version of the victor it's it's the 
let's say, a compilation of lies agreed upon? Yep. But I guess, I suppose those actually emanate, those come into the picture when you build up upon that one singular root definition which I provided. Anyhow, you know, when historians study history, many historiographers have actually provided met methods of studying history which are unique, which are focused on how we humans interact with their past. Now, funnily enough, the fingers that most of these neo-Sikh academics, the new ones, they dismiss all of the things they do not agree with as being Western-inspired colonial mentality and whatnot. Yep, a cop-out. Yep. And what's their alternative? Well, I, I have mean, the answer, but I can't give it on, on air right now. <laughs> and the contribution these historians, these neo-seek historians are making to the field of history is pretty much jack shit, which essentially means they're doing nothing. Now... Have you heard of the historian E.H. Carr in the 20th century? Uh, is this the, uh, the British guy? Yes. Carr was a diplomat who studied history during his own time, and he wrote the most comprehensive history of the Soviet Union, which is still being used today. So when he was, you know, writing that history of the Soviet Union, he was well-placed to do that, I mean, having witnessed World War II. So, you know, when he was writing that, he actually came across all these points, how to render history, how do we understand history, you know, what essentially is the correct way to study history. And, you know, Carr finally came to this conclusion. The German foreign minister before Hitler, I believe, was Streisman. And, you know, he studied Streisman's documents. Now, the issue up till this point as far as history was concerned, in the West. And let's remember the West inspired history, the study of history all over the world in the way the West did it. People accepted Streisman's words in these uh, contemporary documents, letters, and communications, correspondences as being the gospel truth. In the States, Streisman's counterparts' words were equally accepted. So really, you had this big befuddlement as to how World War II finally transpired. What was the reason? And Carr sat down, and uh, this is the comment he makes in his book, What is History? And if you really need to, please do buy that book. Uh, Dr. Balvant Singh suggested it to me. No document can tell us more than what the author of the document thought, what he thought had happened, what he thought ought to happen, or would happen, or perhaps only what he wanted others to think he thought, or even only what he himself Thought he fought. And let me summarize that more effectively. Can I ask you something? Are you lost by now? No. Okay, yep. <laughs> I was just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing. In the first place, the facts of history never come to us pure, since they do not and cannot exist in a pure form they are always refracted through the mind of the recorder. Mm, yep, yep, it happens, yep. Right. Now, you know, what Carr is essentially saying is that, you know, before studying history, why don't you study the historian? 
Hmm. Okay. Now we're coming to the main part. Now we are coming to the main part. And I suppose it makes sense. Now, you know, I recently read a book. I, I read a host of biographies and I read one called Duty. I think uh, Bob Woodward was his name, Obama's defense secretary. No, 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 Robert Gates. Yep. And uh, Gates wrote this book called Duty and it's about his time as the secretary of defense for Bush and Obama. Now, there was an incident under the Obama administration. I don't know if you remember the U.S. had a military exercise in close proximity to Russia, which is pretty ironic given the state of things today. And one of the, you know, Air Force airplanes, transport planes, which was in the air, it actually had real nuclear warheads attached to it. And there was no safety indicator inside for the weapons technician and the pilot to know it was nuclear. And you know what usually happens during these exercises, I mean, given that we both have experiences with the military, is that these exercises are usually designed for you to make mistakes so they can be ironed out. Now, Yeah, the worst case scenario is played out. Yep. Now, imagine if by some ironic twist of fate, someone had pressed the wrong button aboard that plane. Fireworks, Sandalwood. Yep. And a nuclear winter. Uh, well, not exactly in that way, because uh, the whole mechanism to launch a nuke or to drop a nuke is very complex. But yeah, it's, it, it could be counted as a nuclear transgression, yeah. So, you know, what he did, what Gates did, what the Secretary of Defense did was he actually came down hard, and if I remember correctly, the... Uh, chief of the air force the individual representing the air force i can't remember his last name it was buzz someone he was actually sacked on the spot obviously investigations were carried out and it was discovered that there was a very laissez-faire uh, you know attitude towards health and safety in the air force at the time and i mean you know essentially attitude is caught not taught so they you know made they made the top men leave his job but when you study gates himself you study his career from other sources you realize something which is very intriguing is that you know gates in the 90s was told that terrorism religious inspired terrorism would be one of the top five threats to the usa and the cia based this analysis on the fact is that you know Terrorists cannot garner enough spot even in, you know, the worst of exiled or pariah regimes. It's just not possible. We saw what happened with the PLO in uh, Lebanon and, you know, Jordan. Look at how Jordan kicked the PLO out, you know. And the only recourse left open to terrorists then is to utilize whatever existing infrastructure the state has. And, you know, the most bombastic, most conspicuous of this infrastructure is the aeroplane. Hmm. And Gates was told about this, and Gates apparently placed that risk on number 20 of the top 100 threats. And they actually made an observation and carried out a routine uh, check. And on the basis of that, what he actually ordered was that the trend towers be prepared for a a chemical attack, a biological attack, but never uh, aerial attack like, you know, what happened on 
So you understand that fact. You also see that under his tenure, basically after, you know, the elder Bush, the CIA started getting flagged for, you know, a lot of mistakes, a lot of uh, miscommunications. And you see that as a leader, he wasn't really effective. And that changes your entire perspective on the book because ultimately it comes out that Gates really was a man who could order people around, but he couldn't make them do what he wanted them to do. Hmm. And that changes your entire perspective on the history he's recalling, he's recounting. And rather than saying that the Democrats under Obama were committed to winning the war on terror, you could see from day one they just wanted to get the hell out of there. So maybe he wrote the book just to exonerate himself. Basically, but you see how when you understand the writer, the historian, your perspective changes? Yep, of course. Right. And that's what really Carr means, that history is never pure. It reflects to the mind of the historian. You know, for example, you're writing something, it's coming through your mind, through your understanding, through how you see the world. And I have to study you before I study your history to understand what the pitfalls of it are, what you have written, and what the high points are. So, you know, historians can rarely study their subject matter. I mean, let's take Dr. Gandasing, for example. He went off primary sources to write, you know, that uh, book about Baba Jassas and Aluvalia. But, you know, obviously he never interviewed Aluvalia himself. Let me put it right. uh, in this in this way, very simply. Yep. yep. Indian schools, you, you write your school exams on your sheets, yeah? Yes. The teacher will catch you cheating by just reading your answer sheet. They say, I know you, you can't do this. This is not your work. Yep. Because they have understood because the student. Yeah, because they know the student. So, you know, the thing is that Dr. Ganda Singh, that's why he used to say it's necessary to preserve hukam namas and all these, you know, uh, primary relics, because they afford those parts of the picture, which otherwise we will not be able to study. And hey, it's the same all over the world. I mean, look at Washington. All the historians who early on used to write about him, all of them were basically, you know, pro-slavery, until ultimately evidence was discovered that Washington wasn't pro-slavery. And look at how in maybe 60 years that entire picture of the first American president changed significantly. <clears throat> well, today they're, they're pulling down the statues, so, you know, history is history. Yep. <clears throat> the thing is, as Carr says, the function of the historian is neither to love the past nor to emancipate himself from the past but to master and understand it is the key to the understanding of the past. Right? Mm, yep, 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 we, yep. No, no bias, can, no nothing. No nothing. We can view the past and achieve our understanding of the past only through the eyes of the present. Now, another main point down here. Why do we study history? Because really, we want to compare, contrast, implement, and distinguish the present from the past. Hmm. Right? 
I'm reading a book at the moment called Crisis Leadership by Tim Johnson. And, you know, Johnson's saying that all the biggest CEOs who have successfully overcome crisis situations, all of them read history, but they don't solely or exclusively rely on history as in, you know, this is the global financial crisis in 2008. This is what we did during the Great Depression. No, this is what they did. This is what we are going to do different. Right? So that's one aspect of why we study history. Lesson learning, I would say. <clears throat> yep, lesson learning, differentiation, quite a lot. I mean, you need to understand the historian is an individual human being. Like other individuals, he is also a social phenomenon, a conscious slash unconscious spokesman, spokesperson of the society they belong to. It is in this capacity that they approach facts of the historical past. You know, <clears throat> if you look at Sikh history today, I mean, if we lived during Maharaja Ranjit Singh's time or, you know, the end of the missiles, how would we approach Sikh history then? You know, you have Ratan Singh Pangu's Shri Gurpant Prakash. Now, irrespective of the errors and mistakes in that, come to think about it, he speaks very highly of Sikh warriors, Sikh martyrs. You can see that the man is actually living in a very glorious time. He believes he's living in a glorious time. Compare that to the Sikh history books of today, and all of them end on one profound note that the Sikhs are slaves and Sikhs are going to be wiped out soon. So the impression you get from reading a 20th century or 21st century Sikh history book is we have her back against the wall. And from Pangu, you get the impression that, no, we put other people's backs against the wall. Different timeline, yeah? Different uh, ground reality, so. And that really reflects. So you can tell a lot about a historian and their times from the history they write now. In the 19th century, there was a historian called Grote in Britain. And he was a banker, pretty rich. And he actually wrote a book, a series of books, which are still used today on classical Athens. And he commented on Athenian democracy and the like. Now, <clears throat> amazingly enough, during this time, the 19th century, you had the Western world introspecting on what colonialism was and whether it was necessary to subdue the non-white races. And how Grot moved his way around here is that in his book, he wrote that, you know, how the Athenians treated non-Athenians, that barbarism was necessitated by the fact that the non-Athenians did not know about democracy. They were not as advanced. And he forwent the mention of slavery altogether. And anyone who reads that book, anyone who studies Athens knows that it was a slave-holding uh, slave society. They also know that, you know, the Athenians weren't really the moralistic individuals we make them out to be. It wasn't a moral society, as usual. However, mm -hmm. the fact that Grot underscores these two points indicates that one, his time, during his times, Britain and Grot himself being one of their lights, was struggling with the emergence of the middle working class, which was, you know, nothing more than slaves itself. And secondly, he was also one of those individuals who was struggling with the introspection over colonialism, whether it was necessary or not. Now, these two points really didn't deserve a mention in his history book, but the fact he highlighted them convinced Carr and many other historians of his school of thought that they had to study it further 
and they pulled out that really it isn't about Athens, is it? It's not about Athenian society. It's about Grot's own society and own internal mental struggles. Well, yep, interesting point you noted there. Yep. So, I mean, we can keep on going on about this over and over again, but you know, you cannot fully understand or appreciate the work of the historian unless you have first grasped the standpoint from which he himself approached it. And you also got to remember, I think that that could be the second point. Is it's actually is somebody sponsoring the story or the work? Well, yes, you know, overall, we can say that there is a procession, a procession of humanity, of human intellectual achievements and endeavors all throughout time. The historian is a part of that process. And, you know, the historian isn't going to continue going throughout the procession. That procession is going to keep on continuing long after even both of us have gone. But really, it's where they stop at that procession is where they start writing history. So what is that vantage point? Who's behind that vantage point? Why have they stopped at that vantage point? That's what you need to answer. Hmm. I mean, this is not to say that you approach every history with a magnifying glass and start denying that it even transpired. But what I'm pointing out is that you've got to be inquisitive about how the past is understood and why some things are written. And that's how Dr. Ganda Singh approached Sikh history. That's what made him so effective. That's what makes Dr. Balwant Singh still so effective. You know, that 20th century generation of historians which are still among us, that's what makes them so effective because they have understood you, could, you cannot divorce an individual from their society or separate the society from an individual. Really. You know, the historian is a part of the procession of history and rights from the point which their march occupies. And that's what Grot tells us, you know. So <clears throat> coming down to this fact that we have today now, as I mentioned in a few earlier podcasts, we have a lot of Ghanese uh, boys, Prachariks fighting among themselves, right? <laughs> no shortage <laughs> of them, right? Far too many. Right. And I mean... I, I'm usually of the mind, I have this little joke that we should stop having MMA, we should just have, you know, Gurdwara martial arts fight, because, I mean, that's what they've made Gurdwaras for, a fighting ring, really. And the fact is that when you think about it, even these people haven't studied the field of historiography perfectly enough. Now, this is going to be quite insulting to a lot of people. <clears throat> when we think of history as merely a trade or profession, a craft or calling, we find it hard to justify our existence as historians. This may be a valid argument against the multiplication of historians if history is merely a profession. But it cannot be if history is a universal human interest, for in that case, there are already as many historians as there are human beings. And the question questions are not, shall I be a historian or not, but how good a historian shall I be? And that's... Uh, from the Philosophy of History Historical Association leaflet, number 79, published in London in 1930, and that's page three, if someone wants to check it out. So, you know, the question of how good a historian does not depend on the times which the historian lives in, but rather on, you know, why do humans depend on history? So coming down to the point I'm making here is that <clears throat> there was a historian, G.R. Elton, 
and Elton identifies a minimum of seven types of historians who really don't do history any service. And I'm going to name names down here. So if there's a controversial name, tell me. But I'm not going to apologize. So number one, amateurs who view the past from the outside through a whale of strangeness and wonderment. These people are unable to unsee, note, unable to unsee the exceptional and the ordinary and vice versa. This disallows them from formulating critical questions about the past and judge it on its own terms. They're heavily prone to sentimentality. They will accept anything believed to be standard practice without delving deeper into why it is accepted practice. Now, so the examples down here, most of the fanboys we have on Twitter and social media today seek Twitter, especially, you know, the Haven thing. There was one who got really angry and just stormed off and went on to Instagram. And a lot of people were laughing about it because he got called out on Seeks doing Havens. They just accept it because it's written or it's said or they see some some brother doing it. Right? They will tell others yep. that you're, you're not questioning how these practices are coming into Siki when they themselves are not doing the same. So the hypocrisy is pretty big. Now, examples of such historians are, you know, the current day Nam Tari's. Dr. Ganda Singh actually discovered authentic documents, you know, whereby Ram Singh actually dismisses Havans and protecting cows as being Brahmanavadi. Why Ram Singh or Baba Ram Singh Nam Tari, the original Nam Tari's, used to believe in the Guru Granth Sahib. He actually even wrote a letter tipping the British off to the fact that some of his followers are going to kill butchers and Malay Kotla. Hmm. But because the Namtaris believe another story altogether, which is unsubstantiated, which has no proof, it has to be the truth because, well, they're amateurs. Now, the examples of such historians, if you look at it, Santa Jarmil Singh Pandravara has this interview online where he says that Banda Singh Bhadru started acting as a guru and people started worshipping him and Baba Deep Singh left him. There is no evidence that Banda Singh Bhadru did this. Rather, it's oral tradition. And the problem with oral tradition is the same as these mythological historical accounts. Oral tradition is built around something, but there is a need to verify whether that something is the truth or not. Hmm. Right? Now, now well, maybe the oral tradition the, holds the, that Baba Ram Singh is coming back. Yeah, maybe the twisted version, or let's say the yeah. untrue version, serves a purpose today. So they change it, or they they deliver yeah. the message in in a, in a let's say, in a filtered way. Yep. So Namtari oral tradition holds Baba Ram Singh is coming back, and if you remember, in two thousand and twelve, they had multiple <laughs> events where they were waiting for him to come back. They've been believing this for over the past hundred and twenty years. Did he come back? Well, it's just 120 years. The Jews have been waiting for their Messiah for the past for like 3,000 years or something. Yep. Now, another thing down here is that there's a book, The Sikhs of Punjab, if I remember correctly, by Pettigrew. And she recounts the interview with a Karku named Baljeet Singh. And Baljeet Singh basically says that, you know, how Thakur Singh Pindrawal is going around the villages saying that Santa Janel Singh is going to come back. In the USA and California, most Gurdwaras actually believe this to be the gospel truth. And they say it's based on oral tradition. Now, you know, funnily enough, it was from these Gurdwaras and the like in India, from these similar Gurdwaras, a myth started back in the 80s, especially in 85, that Baba Bir Singh, the, the, uh, the teacher of Pai Maharaj Singh, 
who was a veteran of the Khalsa Khan Wars. He was fighting near Kabul and uh, he actually managed to get behind the enemy. The enemy rushed him and he was going to die, but he disappeared and then mysteriously appeared behind the enemy again. It started in 85, but the way it's preached, it's become oral tradition. And because it's been given that veneer of oral tradition, that sacredness, you can't question it. Well, you can question it, but after questioning it, your safety is not guaranteed. Yeah, your safety is not guaranteed. But the thing is that because it's been lent that dimension of sacredness, here's the thing. Once again, with oral tradition, it's the same as the written word. And this is what Carr pointed out a long time ago. Our current perspective of ancient Greece comes from the Athenians. Why are we studying Spartans through what the Athenians wrote? Why are we not looking for what the Spartans wrote about themselves? Okay, okay, well, okay, put it this way. It's like somebody asking your ex about you. They're not going to say good things. <laughs> and that's the thing. So these amateur historians, if you may call them that, these are usually found among Sampradas, Jatas, Deras, and, you know, Santa Babi, whatever they believe. Coming down, number two. Multidisciplinaries who adopt methodologies from neighboring disciplines, thus stultifying history, which is then distorted to buttress their original views. They are unable to interrogate sources to discover the truth beyond the written, critical, and rather rely on relative logic and common sense to unearth the truth, failing which theories are provided to explain away matters, but no fieldwork or profound research is carried out. Now, examples. Professor Darshan Singh Raghi, Harjinder Singh Dilgir, Pai uh, Ranjit Singh Kadriyawala, Koshwant Singh, Sarjit Singh Tunda, Ishar Singh Nara, Harjinder Singh Marjino. You know, Pai Ranjit Singh had this finger a while back and I double checked with Dr. Bhavant Singh Tillo and that was that Guru Gobind Singh Ji met Banda Singh at Anandapur and uh, he uh, informed him to go to Nanded and sort of just prepare for him to come, etc. And that entire thing that, you know, there was this plan behind the scenes to get Banda going. If you accept that source, if you look at the source entirely, that source does not even mention such a plan. Hmm. That source is written a hundred years after what happened. It's the only source which says that this is how Guru Gobind Singh Ji missed Banda Singh. The fieldwork which was carried out in Banda Singh showed that the date mentioned in that source is off by two years. Banda had long left the Punjab during that time. Even the Guru himself had evacuated Anandapur around that time. So for that source to say that Banda Singh met the Guru at Anandapur is pretty uh, fallacious. But then you look at the author and you look at what he further writes about his family's involvement in Sikh history and you realize there's no evidence for it. So really he's just trying to up his own family up. Second thing is that the field work done on Banda Singh shows that he never went to Anandapur. He passed from Ram Thamman. He was aware of Guru Gobind Singh but he never visited the Guru at Anandpur. Their first meeting indeed was in Nanded. If you accept the common sense thing that, you know, get a common sense, or this is common sense, it must be like this. How can the Guru meet someone and trust them with such great responsibility? Fine then. Would the Guru really have selected one man to lead this mission into Punjab? Interesting question, actually. Right? 
you look at it from that uh, Ranjit Singh Tardiawala's perspective and you sort of come to this conclusion that maybe there was indeed one man, but that doesn't explain why the Mughals at the time were hunting down a whole retinue of Sikhs. There was a whole list of Sikhs which they were hunting down, why they blocked other Sikhs from coming to support Banda. And you get the impression that that version can't be right because if it is, then why didn't Khalsa, the struggle for Khalsa sovereignty disappear after Banda died? You look at it from another perspective, Banda was the supreme generalismo based on the current texts we have. But then on the other hand, he was one of many Sikhs who were leading that battle. After he died, others stepped up to his mantle. The question that personally bothered me for a long time was that why did Guru Sahib needed go that far south to find somebody to lead the Sikh nation? Why couldn't he find anybody in Punjab? I think the detail is in the devil is in the detail as to how many other individuals were entrusted with this responsibility. And Banda was made the chief coordinator. That's what you can say. The one man who would have the final say, but there would have been many others also supporting him, even though some of them betrayed him. Anyhow, but you see how the common sense perspective distorts history at the end of the day, then the biggest explanation, I guess, by Saad and his followers would have had for this is that this is common sense. But then common sense succeeds in hiding the real truth. So do we need such common sense where history is concerned? Well, you need to back up by other evidence, whatever you are insinuating. It needs to be back up, backed yep. up. So, but if you start using common sense like this subject, uh, I guess selectively, then you just end up dismissing all that other evidence. Now, number three. Generalists who seek predictions from history. This is quite a dangerous line. History cannot predict the future, only inform it. Generalists, however, attempt to seek out patterns which they believe will replicate in the future. So examples being, you know, Sangat Singh seeks in history, Harinder Singh Mehboob, Sardar Kapoor Singh, Gurtej Singh, IAS, Professor Gurdarshan Singh, Tillo and A.R. Darshi, that, you know, what happened in the past will happen today. I mean, Sangat Singh even ends his Sikhs in history with this high note that maybe someone will rise like Maharaja Ranjit Singh again and lead the Sikhs. They don't really leave themselves any room for maneuver, just like the common sense party. <laughs> I mean, these people will say we can't make the mistakes of the past, but then they end up making the same mistakes ever again because they want to emulate the past 100%. Now, you know, Obviously, in the past 20, 30 years, the figure of Santajar Nelson has grown pretty big in Sikh history. Are we really going to keep on looking at a traditional uh, Samprada, Dera, or Taksal to furnish another such figure because it has happened once historically? Well, what are the chances? That's the thing. What if that leader comes from somewhere else for a better want of expression? Well, from wherever they might come from, we need them today, I think. Yep. Now, moving on. Number four, salvation seekers who impose theories on the past to substantiate their current views. Their salvation lies in distorting the past to fit in with their views and slash or study only parcels relevant to themselves and play them up. Their theories reveal more about the present than the past. And the classic examples are Nidar Singh Nihang, uh, Paramjit Singh of Kashi House, the I guess the, I guess Jatidar Santa Singh of Buddha Dal also fits into this as well. I mean, 
quite a lot of people fit into this because they will impose their own theories to you know substantiate their own views. Right, moving on. Present centrists, number five, who study the past to seek out events which match present day concerns. They live in a time loop unable to see that the present is much different to the past. Now, Arnold Toynbee, Perlas Beck, uh, yeah, and you got Sikh names as well, which I can't name. Otherwise, you know, people get angry. <laughs> right. Here's the most dangerous one. Number six. Mythologists who study history but to create myths. While some might argue myths furnish a more concise understanding of history, one only needs to look at Nazism, Islamism, what's going on in India today, and white supremacism to understand the danger of intermingling myth with fact. That's the most dangerous one in this list. Because when myth comes into history, people have a lot of excuses. I mean, oh, we, it's explaining a complicated subject. It's uh, being done to convert others to the faith. But at the end of it, what you're really looking at is you're bringing lies. And where do the lies stop and the truth begin? You just blew the line permanently. You're below the line permanently. And that's the problem with their people today. All these fights they're having history. I mean, Gurbak Singh Karav Khan actually wrote this little pamphlet and I read it. I know a controversial man, but he, what he was saying is that, you know, in the 20s, several historical grants were banned by the Akalis, SGPC, and over 300 Sikh intellectuals who gathered at the Kaltak because they had to be refined or studied further to actually decide, you know, what value they hold and whether what they say is true or not. And he wrote this pamphlet around the time Jaginder Singh Vedanti and uh, I think Principal Amar Singh of the Khalsa Missionary College, not the Tunda one, the other one, or Shaheed Missionary College, they republished Gurbilas Pat Shahichevi, which says that Guru Hargobind was the son, that Mata Ganga was impregnated by Hanuman's father, and it has many other such claims in there which are dismissed as, oh, this is myth, this is for Sharda, etc. But where do you draw the line? And do these myths well, stand in front of Gurbani? If you're telling somebody that uh, Hanuman's father, let's say, or let's say Hanuman is the half-brother of Guru Sahib, then how can you claim that Sikhi is independent? Um, you do that during June. I'm sure you would have learned that by now. You only do that during June. <laughs> the other 11 months, it's all Havan, Chandis, Natan, Saki. Well, <clears throat> a single thought is enough to, let's say, plant the seed, but it's the, it's the issue. Like, this, 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 let's say, this Saki, for the lack of a better word, I would say, yeah? Yes. Everybody who has heard it, how many ever have a post this or let's say dared question whatever the Raki Pacharako Babaji told them this story? Mm. So today, if you if you go against your parents or your grandparents that this thing never happened, they will probably brush you aside, like, oh, this guy's gone, let's say, Western lens. <laughs> <laughs> They've gone upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's a particular organization which published a book called The Fiery Saga of the RSS. And this book claims that, uh, <laughs> I mean, the claim is so funny that uh, in March 1947, 
a certain number of individuals. Let me see if I can find the number. I think they say 75. Yeah, 75 protected the Barsa from a mob of over 40,000 Islamists. Well, they are the AK-47s? Apparently, they fought them off, and Brigadier General Gurbak Singh or Gurmuk Singh, the only right GS Singh, was the only Sikh left to defend the Darbar Sahib, and the 75 censored helped him. And they managed to fight off the Islamists because the Sikhs were cowards. Now, look at the entire myth. Some things are going to point out. I'll point out some things. The British at the time noted that no one attended Hola Mala, no one from outside Anandapur attended Hola Mala because the Sikhs were going to Amritsar preparing to kill Muslims. That's, that's the brutal reality which they noted. And on 28th of February 1947, Master Tarasing presided over a meeting of 2000 Akalis. And what happened was that's when the British realized that over the previous few months, Sikhs in Amritsar had purchased guns, swords, and other Sikhs had come in and prepared themselves for the eventual battle which was on the horizon. Partition was coming. Amritsar Battalion of Akali Dalakalis was named the Kaldal and placed the, under the command of Jathedar Udam Singh Nagoke, who ranked Darbar Sahib and fortified it. Of course, there were many Sikhs who argued, why do we need weapons in a democracy? Gee, British democracy cannot fall. Gee. Uh, one of the elders at the time who actually witnessed these events, he told me that uh, Nagoke's reply was that if I was raping a woman or destroying a house on the strength of my weapons, then tell me what you're saying now. If not, then wait patiently to get killed like cowards. I'll go out like a Sikh. Now, since 46, the Muslim League had been preparing for the massacre of Sikhs and Amritsar. Sikhs had been preparing for them. 5th of March, 4 p.m., all hell broke loose. Thousands of Muslim belligerents poured into Amritsar. Udam Singh Nagoke led the Sikhs against them. And Khalsa Akal Dals made these safety barriers through which they managed to get people into their Bar Sahib as refugees. Now, what this book claims, the fiery saga claims, the Sikhs left Amritsar for Hola Mala, which falls on the 18th of March. I mean, amazingly enough, what they're saying is that a trip which should have taken one to two days, Sikhs left even before March. Right? And this There's no the reason time, to do so. There's no reason. And this during the time of partition when, you know, basically all of India was facing a lockdown. Then B, those 75. Their names don't correspond with any historic personality. Their addresses don't. One of their addresses is a toilet. Was a toilet even before the British? And the other is a roundabout on a road since the 40s. <laughs> well, yeah, the real places are real people. And the Brigadier General G.S. Singh, now this was actually uh, provided, this information was provided by retired general of the Indian Army who actually checked the records in Meerut. So everything is false. Intelligence reports, British intelligence reports indicate that over 2006 fortified Darbar Sahib. And now, the, now, look, if there's a brigadier general in 1947, there should be a brigade in Amritsar as well, right? Of course. The first brigade to be posted to Amritsar was not in 1947, but actually in 1948. There has never been any brigadier G.S. Singh from 1940 onwards in the Indian Army who served in Amritsar until 1948. For one thing, the entire 40s decade did not furnish a single Brigadier G.S. Singh. And 
What's more, in 1948, the first brigadier general to be posted to Amritsar was M.S. Chopra. Hmm. And now, you know, this book provides a fake background to uh, G.S. Singh, whoever he was. He doesn't exist. Birthday doesn't exist. Date of death doesn't exist. And they claim that he became a quartermaster general. In all the quartermaster general files, there is no mention of G.S. Singh going back, I mean, up to 1935. And really, the only Brigadier General G.S. Singh they can rely on, because they never say what G stands for, is Brigadier General Gurbachan Singh of the Remount Veterinary Services, who was based at Indian Army Headquarters as a veterinarian in New Delhi from October 1947 to November 1947. He wasn't in Punjab during March. Well, this myth, let's say this quote-unquote historical fact has been busted. Okay. Let me tell you, uh, I think you must have heard it. They were actually trying to change uh, the historical outcome of the Battle of uh, Haldigati between uh, Maharana Pratap and uh, Akbar's forces. Yep. Have you heard about it? Yes, I've heard about it. I mean, they're even trying to change Pani, but... Yeah, yeah. So if they manage to do it today, let's say, <clears throat> maybe let's say 300 years later, or maybe if there's a Sanatan school on Mars, let's say, someday in the future, they'll <laughs> preach that. Yeah, bad luck for the Martians. Bad luck for the Martians. It says, right. It's a red planet. It by default belongs to us. Because what I saw was I saw this uh, poster that uh, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, the Americans asked him what he first saw, and he said, I saw a Hindu temple. The Sanatanese have all the facts about the world. We need to listen to them, but this was deleted from history. The person who made this made this as a joke, but underneath you had all these Indians seriously commenting, Jai Shri Ram, Jai Shri Sanatan Dham. You see their groups spread their pages. Our religion is one trillion years old. It even existed before the solar system. He didn't know English, so he never knew what the guy was saying, but he still posted it on Facebook. Man, it was so funny. Just the amount of white people and Israelis laughing underneath was ludicrous enough. And also, it's a, the it's the same person, same thing. The myth is propagated by some Muslim preachers that he saw actually saw, let's say, a light coming coming from Mecca because he saw. You no, know, he looked back at the earth here. Yeah? Well, you know, there are only two things we can say to this, right? Hariyom and Ahmedullah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, number seven. Last category. I mean, you can add your own if you want. I mean, we can keep on going. But number seven, the Sinex who being mentally fatigued themselves have concluded that the test cannot be objectively known. The problem with them is they have an anything goes idea and are unable to preserve their heritage or use it to inform future generations. Now, you want one stunning example of this? Arneek Singh of Radio Versa. Okay. Right. If it doesn't fit in with the common sense agenda, the upgrades, the Versa guys, and the people they oppose, they all dismiss it. And you get the cynicism coming out from them that you really cannot know the past. But in brackets, hey, rely on us. We know what we are talking about. The issue is like, if you're so sure about your views, you must publish, let's say, a book maybe or some text and get it, get it peer-reviewed. I mean, 
one of these upgrade guys had an argument with me once, and he told me that, you know, what proof do we have that Guru Gobind Singh Ji gave us the five Kakars and the beard and the turban? And I asked him, well, uh, why don't you cut your own off? <laughs> you had them for a good 50 years. Why don't you lead the way? Well, he might do it. Yeah, I'm just waiting for them to do it and then claim mental health. I mean, then he was arguing that, you know, there was that model. Look, a model goes and takes a picture in front of Nankana Sahib with her hand uncovered. She trivializes it, but these guys reckon it should all be allowed. And I guess back in the day, upgrades would have been in a majority when all this Brahminavad infiltrated Sikhi. Probably would have said, we need to allow this. We need to be liberals. Sadaki Kasada. And look where we are today. You know, they actually, uh, back in the days, I think it was 60s or 70s, they actually mentioned for the first time this this phrase called the slippery slope. <laughs> that once, yep. if, if we do this, then this and this and this would happen. Yep, dominatory. Yeah, well, you could say domino effect, something similar. Yep. But uh, slippery slope is like, it's going downhill, yeah? So it's just degeneration or some uh, a negative development, yeah? Yes. They are working on the same lines, actually. They are working on the same line. Now, <clears throat> the thing is that unless our Sikh historians are able to furnish some better standard of studying history, which does not involve drinking five cups of sukkah every few hours, we will just move on and use what we have, what has been established and what has been proven as being right. Now, when we use these formulas, we have to remember a lot of things. Anyhow, we busted one myth, and we know that the individuals who write the Fiery Saga book, what types of historians they are and what agenda they have and what society they belong to. Anyway, moving on. Now, consider this. We have the battle of Amritsar, right? Baba Deep Singh versus the Afghans. You heard about it? Yeah. Well, of course, I was just waiting for you to make a point. <laughs> yeah, anyway, this battle has gone down in history as one of the most divisive battles because it divides historians even today. Do you know why it divides historians? The very reason for, the, for which the battle was fought is one of them. If we go off the texts from the time, Persian historiography, historian Persian texts, and, you know, see oral tradition. Like I said, oral tradition needs to have substantiation. You need, you can't just keep on saying oral <clears throat> tradition and escaping if a text does not spot your view. But anyway, this battle was fought in 1757. It is also known as the Battle of Gohalvar. Now, here's the thing. There are two historians, Tony Jacks, and there was Tom Holland as well. These are military historians who disagree, and Vivek Chandra, I think his name is. Yeah, several historians actually disagree with the historical uh, perspective on this battle, that it's actually, uh, it was a defeat for the Sikhs. Now, why it's a defeat is because many historians like Dr. Ganda Singh and uh, Sarjit Singh Gandhi did not study the source which mentions it to be a defeat in death. And that source is the contemporary uh, miskeens, the mass number. Now, the Mas Nama is a very crucial source for understanding Sikh history because Miskin was an eyewitness to the persecution of the Khalsa 
by Nirmanu and the Afghans. But while he provides relevant and correct factual details, some things even he has confused or, you know, some things have crept into the document over time. And he's got his own prejudice as well. I mean, for one thing, he was a pro-Afghan. He was kidnapped as a child, abducted as a child, and raised by the Afghans as a, you know, intelligent-educated uh, slave. So his sympathies and loyalties were with, you know, pro-Muslim regimes. He was also patronized to write an Islamist unity. So what he says is that in 1757, the Sikhs attacked Lahore, and the Afghans and the rich Muslims of Lahore gathered together and bat them back to Amritsar, where five Sikhs came out to oppose them, and they were all killed, including their leader, which is believed to be Baba Deep Singh. And basically, the Afghans won, even though many good Muslims died on the spot, and they left. What, however, this poses is a big problem, because for one, he says he's an eyewitness to this event. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if he's an eyewitness, that doesn't really prove the factuality of the account because you have to study Miskeen as well, but you also have to study some other events. So, you know, a few months later, the Marathas enter the Punjab and Jassa Singh Aluwalia and 10,000 Sikhs gather at Sirhand in January 1758. Right? How are yep. 10,000 Sikhs able to gather in the vicinity of Sirhand from all over the Amritsar and the Dwaba region? If Amritsar, if the Battle of Amritsar is lost by then, using common sense, I see. Not the Tajiawala type common sense, which is excessive common sense. To be fair to him, he's got a point, but sometimes, you know, we need to rein in our views as well. You can't stretch one little point of evidence to its breaking parameters. Right? Mm -hmm. Second thing we need to note is that even though Ahmad Shah Badali had left by this point in time, it makes strategic sense for the Afghans to come to Lahore and then seal off the border with Delhi when they realize that the Marathas are coming into the Punjab because Adina Beg invited them in. Because Delhi has always been a fickle ally. So even, you know, Yamuna, at Yamuna, from Yamna up to Amritsar, it's pretty much open plains. They could easily have smashed the Marathas to pieces down there. So why, in 1757, after the Battle of Amritsar, did they actually go back to Lahore and never progress onwards to seal that border? Maybe the targets were different. Targets were different, but what was the target? Because Abdali actually had instructed them to wait, but at the same time, he gave them enough leeway to do what they had to to, you know, hold on to their domains in, uh, you know, Punjab and beyond. And then, now here's the thing. Many of these uh, bugs claim that the Marathas rebuilt Darbar Sahib. I believe the first time this uh, comment was made was made by Sadar Kapoor Singh, but he never provided any evidence. The thing is, Maratha records of the time themselves make no mention of them liberating Darbar Sahib. Now, after that, Sikhs and Marathas had a falling out over, plund over plunder, <clears throat> and Sikhs negotiated to stay two steps ahead of Marathas, right? So they reached Amritsar before the Marathas anyway. Now, what we have is that the Maratha convey from all the contemporary sources was on moving. So this coalition between Adina Beg, <clears throat> Khalsa, and the Marathas, Dal Khalsa to be uh, more specific, was ongoing 
moving on, progressing forwards. There were no stops. And ultimately, the Sikhs were going forward because Sikh guerrilla bands already had control of the territory up till Amritsar. You note that point, please? Yep. Right. So this proves 10,000 Sikhs coming to, you know, enroll in this coalition. The uh, And ultimately, you know, here's the most decisive piece of evidence. The Afghans had to confront this coalition at Mahilpur and they weren't able to put up a strong show of force and they retreated from there. If they had won at Amritsar, I mean, from Sirhind, the Mahalpur line where it comes to is before Amritsar. There is no account of them vacating Amritsar. What's supposed to have happened is that they lost the battle and from there made a straight beeline towards Lahore and beyond because midway they started being pursued by Sikhs. And the midway point is obviously Amritsar. So all this evidence, as far as Jocks is concerned, indicates that Baba Deep Singh, even though he died, bet the Afghans back to the fringes of Amritsar from there they went back to Lahore and Sikh guerrilla bands had control of Amritsar and beyond. True. And this establishes and also augments Sikh choral tradition that Darbar Sahib started being rebuilt in late December, January, uh, late December 1757 and that at Darbar Sahib, Ardas was performed for Baba Deep Singh sacrifice. Uh, an additional piece of information. Yep. <clears throat> Hosharpur district uh, has never been a Sikh majority district. Yeah? Yep. Yep. When you say the battle took, took, uh, took place near Malpur, you must remember that Hosharpur district was home to a very large Afghan population, which was brought in by, I think, Shah Jahan to yes. consolidate his, his rule over the, the hill, hill people. Yep. Every single village in Hosharpur with the name Basi was an Afghan village. Yep. So you must but... remember, the Afghans came in, they had local support, and the battle was fought on their turf. Another perspective holds that the Sikhs actually were the first ones to confront them and break their back. Ultimately, by the time the Marathas came, they had already retreated from the field of battle. But the thing is that despite this being their own turf, none of the local Afghans managed to stop, spot them. And that just indicates that their back had been broken in 1757 anyway by the Sikhs. And do you really think that after Baba Deep Singh fell and if the Sikhs had lost that battle, these Afghans in Mahilpur would have been sitting quietly? Of course not. Yep, so there's no disturbance recorded there. So really the Sikhs had broken their back because the Sikhs still had control of Amritsar and beyond. Anyway... Especially the countryside. Yep. And that goes to show you that even among the truth, some lies are mixed in by Miskin because he's really upping Muslim, you know, victories. And there's a significant similar incident that in New Zealand during the Maryland was they had a confrontation between the British Navy and the Mary, but what this resulted in was that the captain of the ship at the time was awarded a Victoria Cross. Years later, evidence came to light that, you know, when he claimed that he jumped over the stockade and into the Murray village and killed several of them, there was no Mary 
inside the village in the first place. Well, he got the medal, so he got what he wanted. <laughs> His own shipmates ratted him out, but they were silenced by class differences, and Mary tradition holds that once blood is shed on a certain ground, they have to retreat from there or, you know, vacate it. And six days before this uh, event is supposed to have happened, blood was already shed, so they had left anyhow. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> now, last event we have to discuss, pretty controversial, is the Chandi manifestation myth that through Gobind Singh manifested some goddess to create the Khalsa, empower the Khalsa, whatever it is. Yep, most will argue that this is a myth to explain certain hardcore concepts. I do not know what the certain hardcore concepts are, but let's just look at some historical evidence down here, okay? <clears throat> have you heard about this? Well, of course I have. <clears throat> and what do you think about it? I uh, don't think anything about it. And why don't you think anything about it? Because uh, I have uh, common sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, was that a barb at me? <laughs> well, you got to decide. You got to do something <laughs> after this podcast. So you're going to spend your next few hours thinking about it. <laughs> anyway, Karamjit K. Malotra has written a very important book, The 18th Century in Sikh History. She's quite a reputable historian and a studier of manuscripts. So according to her research, <clears throat> first time this uh, alleged manifestation of Chandi myth is mentioned is in Gurbaksh Shibbar Sarhetanama. And this is the daddy of Kesar Shibbar who wrote the Bansavli Nama. And then date? we have Chop. Yes, well, that's the thing. There is no certain date to the Bansavli Nama, is there? But these are supposed to be Okay, so the third source is Chopa Singh's Retanama, now Gurbaks, Kesar, and Chopa were uh, from Brahmin families who had converted to Sikhi. I guess in light of their works, you can say they had converted out of uh, convenience rather than conviction. Ah, I've heard those two words. Right? <laughs> I credit it to you. And, <laughs> and the thing is that, you know, I find it really hard to believe that even during the 10th Guru's time, these people would have let go of whatever their uh, past affiliations or thoughts were. And you need to remember that the Deya Singh Rathnama, which is generally credited to Pai Deya Singh, even McLeod dismissed it as being credited to Pai Deya Singh because he believed that it had been infiltrated so many times, it's hard to believe that it's actually uh, from Guru Gobind Singh's time. The thing is that that Rehetnama mentions that Chandi gave Kesh the hair we have on her head, but they don't mention anything else. Anyhow, getting back to the story. So What I've heard is that Chandi actually gave the knife, the Karpana. Yep, I'll get on to that. We're going to explore this. So Kesar, uh, Gurbaksh, Kesar, Chopa. And then suddenly we have this blackout where this myth isn't mentioned until Srupadas Pallas Mhema Prakash. Then Kaur sings Gurbilas Patshay Dasvi and then Sukha sings Gurbilas Patshay Dasvi. So six sources which mention Chandi being manifested. And the same myth is copied by Santok Singh and Suraj Prakash. None of them can decide between themselves where this haven happened, how it happened, how long it happened at a particular place and what exactly happened. Hmm, okay. 
And to quote Malotra's research, because she's actually done quite a significant research on all this, uh, there is quite a lot of disagreement between these sources themselves as to how this event played out. But really, they have the same uh, same concurrence that it's actually happened and that the real heroes were the pundits and not Guru Gobind Singh Ji. And if we look at it, <clears throat> Some things need to be considered here as to why the Guru would do this in light of Gurbani, right? So, <clears throat> now, the goddess is introduced, obviously, by Gurbakshibu. And in the Chopa Singh Hetanama, the goddess appears in the narrative part sometimes after, seven, after 1740. So, around then, it's usually believed that this goddess thing took off. <clears throat> so, one aspect of this is that after the institution of the Khalsa and the removal of Masant in 1697, Guru Gobind Singh wanted to snatch power from the Turks and to give Raj to the newly created Khalsa Pant. Mr. Kalika thus performed home for the Guru at Nena Devi in 1699, and the goddess was pleased with the sacrifice of Kalika Das's hands, which were restored when a particular Astotar hymn of praise was recited. This was how the Khalsa Pant was empowered to fight and establish their rule. Now, this is Gurbakshibar's take on it. Only problem being that from 1691 onwards, the state in which Nena Devi, where this uh, incident is supposed to have happened, was under the control, I believe, from the mid-90s or the early, Ajmer Chand, who was the son of Pim Chand, and both of them were sworn foes of the Guru. Now, I asked an individual who lives in Blasper what their oral tradition, what their side of the story is, and they say that there are three different ones. That one, Guru Gobind Singh Ji performed the Havan, got, you know, very frustrated that Chandi didn't appear at Ek, the pundits chased them out. Two, that he performed the Havan at Nena Devi, but uh, nothing happened, so he just insulted the pundits and left. Or three, this never happened at all. And what did he say? Well, basically, according to him, after studying history, there's no way that the Guru could have been allowed to do anything at Nena Devi because this was the territory of his enemies. Even if he had a haven, they would have extinguished it. But there is no way that someone like Guru Gobind Singh Ji could have accounted to such a useless practice like haven. <clears throat> it's a hilarious. It's a perfect play for, for an ambush to kill Guru Sahib. So, well, makes no sense. Makes no sense. Now, guess there's... Now, look at Gurbak Shibar's story. Yep. And then we have Kesar Shibar and Ban Savli Nama. But he changes a few things in there as well. And you really need to you know, ponder here, why don't the critical details match between the father's recantation and the son's, even though they were together at the same time? Depends on how many drugs they were on. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to say that the British infiltrated and corrupted these manuscripts, but unless you have evidence of that, there's no use saying that as well and then keeping on using them and doing katha from them in Gurdwaras. Moving on, Kaur Singh's treatment of Durgan is Gurbalas Pachai Dasvi. Now, you know, we don't know what his problem is, Kaur Singh's, but he seems to be lost between Hinduism and Sikhi. Anyway, that whole thing is based on uh, Kesar's re recounting, but again, he's changed details enough that you would think that what new source he has. And 
according to court, really, that the Kashmiri Brahmins would have promised to manifest Chandi as well. So quite a lot of, you know, uh, mental acrobatics going on in these uh, manuscripts, even though there are some of the few which mention this Chandi myth. But then on the other hand, it's observed that if you take out the Brahmin as a matter of course in Spurk, you can get a Rahita number, which is 101% matching with the Khalsa Rahita today. And coursing mm, places the episode of the Chandi or the goddess after Guru Gobind Singh's return to Makawal and from, from, Anandpur from Ponta. So after the Battle of Nodan. So quite a lot earlier than Gurbaksh and Kesar. Why? No one knows. Now, <clears throat> he said, sir, to narrate the appearance of Chandika Pavni, Ambika Kali and Sharda Kali and Sharda Pavni to bless Guru Gobind Singh. She was worshipped for three years, but she did not appear. Brahmins told the Guru that the goddess used to appear in one year during the Satyug and two years during the Treta, three during the Dwapar, but in Kaliyug she takes four years, so they needed a secluded place to invoke her. Nena Devi was chosen for this purpose. Man, this just keeps on getting better and better. Brahmins present the goddess as the supreme deity, the go creator of Brahma, Vishnu, and Mahesh. Her praises could bring political power to the Khalsa Panth. Guru Gobind Singh Ji participated in the worship. The gods were afraid that the Guru might be empowered by the goddess at their cost, and then that the gods did not know what to do about the Guru. And then what actually happened is that for the welfare of others, the Guru actually used the agency of the goddess of Chandi to institute the Khalsa. And then all this Kotak happened. Many spirits are scared to have, uh, said to have tried to scare or lure the Guru away, but he kept on worshipping the goddess without eating anything. Then, now, listen to this. Brahman told Guru that the goddess required sacrifice of a brave person. The Guru said that no one was as brave as the Brahman. Brahman ran away. Five Sikhs <laughs> of the Guru offered themselves to be sacrificed. And then because they were sacrificed, the goddess appeared with weapons. And then the goddess said, Guru, what will you give to me? He said, I'll give you the heads of 1,025,000 Sikhs. And then he asked for the boon of the Khalsa. And the goddess said that the five Sikhs are more braver than the Guru. Five Sikhs are more braver than the Guru. Because the Guru did not sacrifice himself. Now, remember this point, the Brahmin ran away. We will come back to this soon. And another thing about all these works is they are falling over themselves to say a Kalpurak is supreme and not the goddess, but then they're saying that the goddess is a, the power of a Kalpurak and that the goddess is blue a Kalpurak. And then there are all these mental acrobatics going on to justify the Guru doing Havan, but then at the same time to say that Havans are useless. So like you said, depends on how many drugs they must have taken. Now, Bansavli Nama, his treatment is the longest. And uh, after the martyrdom of Guru Tegh Bhadar, Guru Gobind Singh Ji started meditating to destroy the Turks. A voice told him to grasp the Khanda. He resumed his duties as the Guru. Pandit Devi Dutta used to recite and explain the Mahabharata to him. So he advised the Guru to manifest Pavani. Again, this is very different from Gurbakshibar. You know, Kesar's daddy, what he says. And then the Guru tested a number of Brahmins and those who kept on eating vegetarian food, even though he offered them money for meat, were chosen. These were Haridas, Harpagwan, Lachiram. And they remained steadfast. And what happened is that two more Brahmins were invited, Vishanpal from Kashi and Shivbakar from Kashmir. So a Jatha of Brahmins came along. And the Guru insisted that the fire should arise from self-ignition. But Brahman said, hell, we can't do that. That's not the divine science we know. And then what happened, they said that there's one Brahman, Kalikadas. He's capable of, you know, getting the goddess to manifest. Kalikadas came from the south. 
And he asked the Guru that whether he could sacrifice or not. Guru said, I can do it for 40 days. And then the Guru decided to new, uh, create a new punt for the Khalsa. He put on his Janu, went down there, started doing home. And then suddenly the goddess appeared. But Guru Gobind Singh Ji was struck blind. He could not even wake up to her presence. He could not look at her. He realized he was in an awesome presence, just trying to show the Guru as being inferior. Kalikada yep, yep, said, yep. Guruji, offer your head. Now's the time. The Guru said, Kalikadas, you should offer your head, man. So Kalikadas's head hands were cut off by the Kanda of the goddess because obviously he was a Brahmin. She couldn't touch his head. The Brahmin emerged under the Kihonasi. You know, your TV channel would have turned off. And then uh, all the Brahmins came to Kalikadas and they recited the Devi Astotar. Kalikadas' uh, hands came back and he told the Guru that if you had given your head, your head would have come back as well. But then Kalikada said he could not offer his head because nobody else knew how to revive him. Nevertheless, the go, go, goddess said to the guru, look, I'm pleased even though you did not, you know, give me your head. You acted like a coward. And then he was told to give the Brahmins a fee for performing the ritual except Devidas. And here's the most classic one. Guru apologized and made Devida, uh, made Kalikadas happy with gifts. And then the Khalsa Panth was created. Amen. They are openly insulting Guru Sahib. And then Palla talks of a similar situation. And that's pretty much it at the end of the day. And Sukhasing has just plagiarized off pretty much coursing. It's interesting to note that uh, there is no Gurdwara associated with this, this story. Well, there might be in the future if the Sanatan Sikhs get their way. They might build one next to the temple and make it a bigger one, bigger source of income. Yep. Six sources, six contemporary slash near contemporary sources which claim Devi was manifested, but then there are 14 contemporary slash near contemporary sources which say it wasn't done like this or that they never even mention it happening. So what are these sources? Senapati's Gursoba. Pai Jeta Shri Gurkatha Seva Dasudasi's Parchiya Dasapachayaki, Pai Prahlad Singh's Rhetanama, works of Pai Nandalal. Even the Dasam Grantha doesn't mention it, the Sarblo Grantha doesn't mention it, Hukam Namas don't mention it. Kavi Nandaram's Karka Guru Gobind Singh no, doesn't mention it, Kavi Senapat Singh's Karka Dasipachahika doesn't mention it. All these sources don't mention it. And Mahima Parkash Vartak of Kirpal Deya Singh doesn't mention it. Tarike Punjab of Ahmad Shah Batlavi. Now, here's the interesting thing. Batlavi actually traveled to Anandpur around that area, and they told him their oral tradition that the Guru had said to the Brahmins, who can be braver than you, they had run away. And then the Guru had actually exposed them for being the, you know, charlatans and fraudsters they were. Even the Panth Prakash of Punk, who doesn't mention it, even though the Nihams today claim it's been expunged by Pai Veer Singh, there's no evidence of it. And Guru Kiya Sakya by Sarup Singh Koshis doesn't mention it, even though it's written around the same time as Sukha Singh's Gurdalas. Hmm. What are the dates on the, all of this text you have mentioned, or the writers you have mentioned? Senapati is believed to have completed his work around 1711. Pai Jetta was still alive at Anandapur when he uh, completed his work. Pai Jetta actually says that even doing Havans is a big sin for Sikhs. That's what the Guru told him face to face. So the most important one I found down here is that, you know, even though Gursoba says that Chandi is a warrior among many other warriors, it only makes mention of her once. 
what it really says is that a Kalpurk is the creator of all, and no one is to worship any Devi, Devta, or deity. That's Guru Gobind Singh Ji's command. And Pai Jeta says that what happened is that early on at Damdama Sahib in Anandapur, Guru Gobind Singh Ji was in deep thought. He built a big fire, lit a match, massive pyrotechnic display, and he went around shouting, Jetag, Jetag, Jetag. Whenever anyone asked him what happened, he said, Jetag. What Ahmad Shah Batlavi found was that the Brahmins came to Anandapur. They actually asked the Guru that, you know, can we manifest Chandi for you? And the Guru joined in just to make fun of them. At the end of the day, when Chandi didn't appear, the Guru, you know, let this massive pyrotechnic display because, you know, why Jetta doesn't mention Nana Devi, he just mentions near uh, Damdama Sahib. And the Guru went around waving his sword, then saying, Jetek, Jetek to the Brahmins, that, you know, your goddess, the goddess you worship, that goddess I have confined her to my sword, your goddess is useless. <laughs> my sword is more useful than your goddess. Now, most people would say that Batlavi was a Muslim and he would write something like that to insult the Hindus. But then at the same time, Batlavi also writes many accounts where the Guru insulted Muslims and Muslim beliefs as well. Well, then the same argument applies to the Brahmins as well. They are Hindus, so they're going to write something, let's say, anti-Sikh and pro-Hindu. Pretty much. So you can see that even this, you know, even the Dasam Granth doesn't mention manifestation of Devi. Even the uh, Hukam numbers don't. This, you know, Sarblo Granth they have now brought up, that doesn't mention it. So really, if the Guru himself never mentioned such a big event happening, you know, even the Hukam numbers, why should we even believe that this actually transpired in the first place? When the very, very tale is an antithesis of what Sikhs believe. Do you want to believe or do you want to know? Very important distinction to make. Answer this question very, very carefully. Do you want to believe or do you want to know? Want to know. I think it's it's the uh, it's a question that uh, I think it was in my school time. I said, "Do you believe in uh, evolution?" And the kids were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And one kid's like, "One kid's sort of like, no, I don't believe in evolution. I think uh, I want to know about it. I want to understand it." And she just say, "Okay, that is that's a good student." <laughs> Now, if you look at the times of these authors, Kesar, Gurbaksh, and uh, Chopa, they would surely have this predilection in their mind that, you know, the Guru has upended centuries of Brahman hegemony. Why don't we treat time as being cyclical? Because they don't treat time as being linear in their works. They treat it as being cyclical. So basically what they're saying is that, you know, what Kesar is saying in Ban Savli Nama, that by, you know, incorporating all the lower castes into the Pant, the Guru is going to ensure it will be destroyed and then Kalki Avtar will come on again and will happen. So he's introduced all these myths again that everything will have to be undone and Brahmins will have to become supreme again. Hmm. So in their minds, just like what Grot wrote, in their mind, they had this concern, this aversion to Sikhi so they decided to redefine it altogether. Well, they had reason to do so. And as for Pala, Kaur, and Sukha, even Santok Singh, you can see they had access to each other's works at the time, and they pretty much wrote that down as well. It's believed that Kaur was a convert to Sikhi, irrespective of what time he claims to be it, and that he was a disciple of Pai Mani Singh, that he was their student. Irrespective of that, really, it's believed in totality that 
he was a convert so obviously he had that convert's uh, mindset that he could not understand the newness of sikhi at all so we can say he was a convert by convenience and not by conviction uh i'll i'll give you one example of it yep uh conviction versus convenience uh, you know in in many jails across europe and even in america yep uh the the criminals they convert to islam yep that's to escape beatings and punishments yep. once they are out they are back to their normal ways yep so basically you can see down here that this devi myth is a lie and ahmad shah batlavi probably has the most truthful essence that you know brahmins offered to manifest jandi as a hypocritical show the guru wasn't going to fall for it he insulted their customs and traditions and chased them out of anandpur Hmm. Yep. Right. So we have gone over our limit. We probably got five more minutes before anchor starts to cancel us for going over the limit. Anyhow, thanks for today. This was a very deep and profound topic, and it took us some research before we could come up with this. So the texts we have mentioned is 18th century and Sikh history by Malotra, Gursoba, Gurkata, and multiple other texts. But most important will be E. H. Carr's What Is History. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yes, I can. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, somebody called me in between. Okay. Yep. So, anything to add to recap to top it all off? Okay. I would just say that whenever you're reading history, any history, religious history, political history, military history, look at the historian first. Yep. Look at their background. Look at their other works. I could say. Yep. And look for mul- multiple other sources to confirm whatever they've written. Don't rely oh, on the ghost of oral tradition to just explain things away by saying oral tradition. Well, oral tradition makes uh, well. The commandment says, "Thou shall not kill." It's originally, "Thou shall not murder." Yep. But so this, 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 yeah, this oral tradition, this, 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 this thing, distinction, has been lost through, let's say, or went from Hebrew to ancient Greek, then uh, through multiple languages, and then to English. Yeah. It's all yep. lost. Old tradition cannot stand the test of time. No. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to us. Vaheguru ji ka khalsa. Vaheguru ji ka khalsa. Vaheguru ji ki fateh. Vaheguru ji ka khalsa.